You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Maddie Freeman, who is a journalist, author, and contributor to the New York Times op-ed section. A former Associated Press correspondent, his work as a reporter has taken him from Israel to Lebanon, Morocco, Moscow, the Caucasus, and Washington, D.C., and his writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, Tablet Magazine, and elsewhere. His 2016 book, Pumpkin Flowers, A Soldier's Story of a Forgotten War, was chosen as a New York Times notable book and is one of Amazon's 10 best books of the year. His first book, The Aleppo Codex, an investigation into the strange fate of an ancient Bible manuscript, won the 2014 Sami Rohr Prize, the ALA Sophie Brody Medal, and the Canadian Jewish Book Award for History. It was translated into seven languages. In his latest book, Spies of No Country, the story of Israel's first intelligence agents in 1948, has already received the 2018 Natan Book Award. So welcome, Maddie. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's great to be here at the Spy Museum. So for many Americans, even those of the Jewish faith, the events of the birth of Israel may not be as well known as the wars of 67 and 73, or even the more recent intifadas. Can you briefly explain, to make sure we're all on the same page, kind of what was going on in 47 and 48 that really leads to the story of this book? Sure. Briefly, you mean five or six hours, right? Right, exactly. No problem. Uh, in 1947, the British, who've controlled a mandate territory called Palestine for about 30 years, declare that they're, they're leaving. It's the end of the Second World War. The British Empire is crumbling. They're leaving India. They're leaving all kinds of colonial possessions, and they're going to get out of Palestine. The United Nations decides to partition the territory between uh, Jews and Arabs, creating a Jewish state and an Arab state. That happens in a vote at the United Nations on November 29, 1947. And that sets into motion a war which we in Israel call the War of Independence. It has two stages, one that begins with the UN vote, and lasts until May 1948, which is when the British leave. And then the second stage starts. So in the first stage of the war, the uh, the British are still in control, and it's very much an underground war between two kind of military undergrounds. No one has a real army. It's uh, Palestinian Arabs on one side, Palestinian Jews on the other side. And uh, the Jewish military underground begins to function less as 
kind of a gang, which it had been previously, and more as an actual military force. They have an intelligence section. They start operating in larger and larger infantry units. And, and the, ter- the tide of the Civil War stage of the 1948 war begins to turn by the spring of 1948. The British leave in the middle of May. The last British a soldier gets on a troop ship in Haifa and, and sails away. And the state of Israel is declared. And at that moment, the, the war shifts from a civil war to, uh, to a, more like a real war. Uh, the newly born state of Israel is invaded by five regular Arab armies. And the odds against the survival of Israel were pretty mm-hmm. uh, steep. Um, but by the end of 1948, uh, the Israelis, as they're now called, have managed to fend off the Arab invasion and establish control over uh, part of what had been British Mandatory Palestine, which we now know as as the state of Israel. And you mentioned that there was kind of a ragtag gang, but it wasn't just one. It was multiple different ones that eventually had to kind of be brought together. It wasn't It wasn't like there was one group that was fighting against the Arabs. It was just disparate groups, some more paramilitary than others, some more organized than others. That's right. There were a few underground military organizations. The biggest one was called the Haganah, which is a Hebrew word for defense. And that's the one that morphs afterward into the Israel Defense Forces. But there were others. There were two right-wing militias. Uh, the Haganah itself included an elite um, force called the Palmach, which is a Hebrew acronym for strike companies, which is a very grandiose name for something that was very, yes. very much an amateur operation, kind of hardline socialist militia drawn largely from the kibbutz movement, very much inspired by the Red Army mm-hmm. and by Tito's uh, partisans in Yugoslavia. And all of this has to be dismantled when the state is created in order to enable the creation of an, uh, creation of an actual army that will actually follow orders, which wasn't the case uh, before uh, before. May 1948. Well, you even talk about in the book how, like, the left-wing people, they had, like, pictures of Stalin on their walls, and then you had, like, the far right, and it's just... Obviously, politics, even in Israel today, are still left and right, but you need everyone to kind of come together. This is a battle for survival, as, you know, it was later on in 67 and 73, but this literally, there's no state yet. You know, that that, that we won't talk about a lot because we want to focus on the intel side, but it's, to me, it's interesting to look at the fact that and you mentioned this, and we'll talk about this kind of in hindsight, we take it for granted that kind of everybody came together and fought. That was a hard process of actually getting these very, very far apart people politically to come together. That's right. It's one of the amazing accomplishments of Israel, which we do take for granted because the state has existed for more than 70 years, but most new states don't succeed. And the Jews had never lived together in, in a political entity. These are disparate groups of people. Some are very religious, some are secular, some are identified with hard left, like you said, pictures of Stalin mm. on a lot of the kibbutzim, the communal farms. And others were very much inspired by the West, by Great Britain, by, by the United States, and the fact that they managed to come together under one political roof and move together toward a common goal is quite incredible. Most of the action in this book takes place before that happens. So we're still in the stage where everything's chaotic. In retrospect, we know that they're about to create the state of Israel and that these guys are going to be part of something called the Mossad, which is going to be a successful intelligence service. But at the time, no one knew anything. And the odds against any of this happening were actually pretty long. Israeli intelligence has caught the imagination of a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's, there's books, TV, movies about the Mossad, the legendary Mossad, and even recent pop culture about Arab Jews uh, working for Israeli intelligence. The Fauda is a great kind of, almost seems like it's the natural descendant of this. How in the world hasn't a book like this been written before? I mean, this is, this seems like kind of a holy grail 
of finding a topic about Israeli intelligence and about the beginning of it that really hasn't been covered from 50 angles before. And this hasn't. That's what's so great about this. This is, even if you know everything there is to know about Israeli intelligence, this has new stuff in it, which is just extraordinary. And that, you know, you have to be congratulated for that. I mean, that's kind of... Don't let me stop you. No, no, I know, right? So where, where did this new information come from? Like, what, what makes this unique? It was really a stroke of luck for me as a journalist that no one had done much with this with this stuff until now. These are events that happen. The book really happens between 1946 and, and 1950. So a lot of time has gone by and nothing has been written about these guys in English. Very little has been written about them in Hebrew. This is not a story that's well known in Israel and it's not known at all outside of Israel. I stumbled on it basically by mistake. My first book, The Aleppo Codex, is about an ancient Bible manuscript that was kept in Aleppo, Syria, and then smuggled to Israel. And there was a Mossad angle to that story. So one of the characters in the book is uh, a very old, retired Mossad agent. And in one of my conversations with him, he recommended that I speak to a friend of his who is an even older, retired Mossad agent. And I didn't know exactly why I was going to speak to this guy. His name's Isaac Shoshan, and he uh, lives in a very small apartment in a suburb of Tel Aviv, kind of working class suburb south of Tel Aviv. And um, I said, OK, I'll go to meet him. And I, as I read in the book, I've learned over my time as a journalist that if someone wants to introduce you to an old spy, you just go. And you probably know that in your well, life. That's, yeah, that's my motto here. It's like, you want to tell me, okay, sure, let's talk it's, to anybody. It's not going to be a waste of time. Yeah. So I went to meet Isaac Shoshan, and he opened the door, and he's this really kind of little guy. Today he's 94. At the time, he was in his late 80s. And he told me this crazy story about 1948 that I had never heard. And it was actually so far from anything that I knew that I had to go back several times until I really understood what he was telling me about this small, amateurish, kind of seat-of-the-pants intelligence operation called the Arab Section, which predated the founding of the state, and about these pretty wild adventures that he and his friends had had around the creation of the state. Uh, these, they were kids. They were barely out of their teens. Some of them were still in their teens. Uh, some of them didn't make it. Um, and it was just an incredible story. So I uh, it kept going back with my digital recorder, kind of driving him crazy. Tell me again. Tell me more. Tell me. And it eventually kind of got used to me coming. And mm. the information flowed more freely. Then from that, I found that other members of the Arab section, he was the only one still alive, but the uh, but other members had left behind oral testimonies that I managed to find. And then I managed to get to files in Israel's military archive, which were still secret, weirdly, 70 years after the war. But which um, I managed to get declassified, at least some of them, because mm. enough time had gone by, but, but no one had asked for them, right? Um, which, is, which is incredible. And then all that information went into the mix that eventually became this book, Spies of No Country, which we, came out last month. You even talk about the fact that there are two kind of official histories, but they're only in Hebrew. They're not translated outside of that. And like you said, even people inside Israel probably haven't read these because they're decades old at this point. They're decades point. old and you can't find them. They're both yeah. out of print and they're, they're very hard to find. So you already mentioned this, and I, and I want to kind of circle back to it, because I, to me it's a theme of the book, is that throughout you remind the reader to kind of throw out historical hindsight. Um, as we talked about, the current state of Israel wasn't inevitable, like we may kind of think about it today. One thing that really jumps out also is the British attitude toward Israel is something that people today might be surprised about, right? The idea is um, they were arguably, the, the Arabs, of course, were the thing standing in the way of Israel becoming a nation, but the British were just as bad in many circumstances, preventing Holocaust survivors from actually making it to Israel, um, standing in the way of the, the kind of the first stage of the war, the, 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 the Jews being able to fight against the Arabs on the streets. And that British attitude is something that really jumps out as being 
they're just as bad as an enemy potentially for the Israelis as uh, the Arabs are. By the time the 1948 war rolls around, the the British are really an, an antagonist in, in many ways. The most potent military force that the Arab side can field, which is the Arab Legion of Transjordan, is commanded and equipped by the British. The, the officers are British. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, the Jewish military forces are fighting British uh, British officers. Um, but the British role is more is more complicated. Of course, the the beginnings of the Zionist movement in earnest come with, or the of Zionist settlement in Israel in earnest come with the British Balfour Declaration in 1917, which acknowledges that this piece of land is going to be uh, a refuge for for Jews, a national home for Jews. And the British attitude changes over over time, and it moves more, uh, more closer to the Arab position, seeing this Jewish enclave as as a problem for British foreign relations and as something that's going to kind of get in the way of of Britain's um, ties with a big and important part of the world, which is the Islamic world. But it's interesting and also little known that the roots of Israeli intelligence in many ways and the roots of the Arab section also lie with the British. Right, the SOE during the whole Exactly. In 1941, there's this panic in Palestine because it looks like the Wehrmacht is about to take over the entire Middle East. They're moving through North Africa toward Palestine and they're coming south through Russia and the allies are in in disarray. America's still not in the war and it looks like the Germans are about to take over the entire Middle East, including this Jewish enclave in Palestine. And people understood what that meant. It was still early, but they understood what that meant. And there's a kind of a shared freak out in Palestine in 1941. The Jews freak out for obvious reasons and the British who control Palestine also do. And for a brief moment, they're forced together to plan for this impending invasion. And the SOE, the special operations executive guys who are kind of cowboys, they don't really respect the established military authorities and they're doing their own thing. They decide that they need to train Jews as guerrillas to fight the Germans. And who better to fight the Nazis, right? Who's yeah. more loyal? Right. And it's hard to find loyal um, loyal uh, potential fighters in the Middle East, but the Jews are one group uh, that, that would love to fight with the British, even though they have a lot of, they have a beef with the British, but at the moment in 1941, that beef seems smaller than the shared uh, fear of the Nazis. So in 1941, the SOE sets up a few small intelligence operations in in Palestine because they realize that what they have in Palestine is a group of people who can pass for all kinds of different nationalities. These people are experts at double identity, not because they've been trained as spies, but just because that's a a, a part of Jewish history. So you have people in Palestine who can pass for Germans. They speak perfect German. They look German. And they train a section called the German section, which is a small group of German Jews who are trained in Nazi uniforms, they're trained in German, they're trained in a cave outside a kibbutz in northern Israel, and they're pretty incredible stories about their training. And their role was to, uh, to, to work, to operate behind the lines after the Nazi invasion of Palestine, which never happened. So the German section never comes into play. But another section that the SOE sets up is called the Arab section, which is made up of Jews from Arab countries, Jews who can speak Arabic, Jews who are native to the Arab world, who are meant to operate in Arab countries, again, behind enemy lines. And when the Wehrmacht invasion is averted by the end of 1941 and the course of the war changes because of El Alamein and because of Stalingrad, the Arab section is no longer useful to the British. But the Jewish military leadership understands that it will be useful when the war comes against the Arab world, as indeed it is. Well, what's interesting to me also um, is that in hindsight, we also think about how Israel today, Israeli identity, right? This is a country... And no matter where you're from, kind of you're Israeli first and foremost. But that Israeli identity didn't exist at the time. I mean, this is um, there was a real problem between the European Jews 
and those who actually of the Middle East who had been there a long time. Um, one of your main characters actually was really thrown back by the idea that there was kids from Syria not being adopted when all the, kind of the, the orphans from that had left because of Nazism were snatched up and kind of this racism may be the right word in this case against Middle Eastern Jews, whereas the European ones were kind of seen as more Israeli. That's right. And that's the ethnic dynamic that's in play in this story, which is one of the things that makes it interesting to me. In the 40s, before 1948, before the establishment of the state of Israel, almost all of the Jews in Palestine came from Eastern Europe. And there was a small minority of Jews who were native to the Middle East. In the 40s, there were about a million Jews who were native to the Islamic world. Every major Arab city had a Jewish quarter. Baghdad, for example, mm. was one-third Jewish in the 1940s. People uh, don't tend to know that. But there was a, a, a large and deeply rooted Jewish community in the Islamic world, mainly in Arab countries. And um, uh, the, the, the Zionist movement, which was European in its origins, didn't really know what to make of these people because for them, Jews came from Europe, from Eastern Europe, and they were trying to create a state in the Middle East along European uh, lines, and they're inspired by socialism, and they're very much inspired by European nationalism, and um, who are these people who spoke Arabic? And mm. they were Jews, but they seemed like Arabs, and no one really knew what to do with them, and they were marginalized and treated often with disdain in those days, with one exception, the intelligence services, because the intelligence guys understood that it's very useful to have Jews who can pass for Arabs, and they went out to actively recruit them. Mm -hmm. And this became one of the only corners of the Zionist movement in those days where this identity, the Arab-Jewish identity, was valued. So at some point around the end of the Second World War, they go out to try to find these kids, often uh, living without their parents. Some of them were orphans. Sometimes they were basically street kids, like Isaac Shoshan was living on the street, more or less. He was selling green peppers from a crate, uh, sitting on the ground, selling them from a crate at one of the vegetable markets in Tel Aviv when he was picked up and then uh, brought to a kibbutz where he did agricultural work and then spotted on the kibbutz by Arab section recruiters who understood the value of his identity. So often these guys came from the Arab world or born in the Arab world. Isaac Shoshan was from Aleppo, Syria, mm -hmm. and his original name was Zaki Shasho. And then he came to what later became Israel to become a Zionist. And he used his, he began using a Hebrew name, uh, Yitzhak Shoshan or Isaac Shoshan. So he changes his identity to fit in in this new place right. that he's in. But the recruiters, the intelligence recruiters, don't want his new identity. They want his old identity. Right. They need him to be the Arab kid from Aleppo that he used to be. So they give him uh, a new name. His, ne his new name is Abdul Karim Muhammad Sidki. It's the identity of a Palestinian Muslim. And it's with that identity that he is sent back into the Arab world as a spy. So these guys are playing a very complicated identity game and, and a very complicated game in, inside their own society where, on the one hand, they're risking their lives for the cause and they're valued for that. But, um, but in other ways, they're, they're marginalized and not taken seriously. And that's very much a part of this book. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. 
Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. The cover aspects of this are interesting because it's not just necessarily trying to be expert at regional dialects or an expert about if you say you're from Aleppo, you better know what stores are on a certain block. It's also about Islam, right? So these are people who are, are of the Jewish faith but have to know the Islamic traditions, the Islamic prayers, because one screw up and you're toast. Um, and that, of course, that's true for any kind of undercover operation. But in this case, it's multi-layered. It's not just understanding culture. It's not just understanding language. It's understanding a religion that, for many of the people who are fighting against Israel, is the number one priority. And they know it so well. Like, it's just, you know, memorizing verses from the Quran and understanding what they mean and all that stuff. Any little slip up in their toast. And, and that happens. Yeah. The, the first fatalities from the Arab section are in December 1947, so very early in the war, right? The, the war really begins November 29th, and just a few weeks later, two of these guys are operating in Jaffa, which is an Arab city south of Tel Aviv, and they're using cover as workers. They're both Jews from Iraq, so native Arabic speakers, and they're caught on the street by members of the Arab militia in Jaffa who suspect them. And we think we know why they were suspected. They seem to have made a phone call from Jaffa to Tel Aviv that was overheard by someone at the telephone exchange. So we think that's what kind of got the militia onto them. These guys are taken into custody. And we also have tapped phone conversations between members of the militia discussing what to do with them. So we kind of have a sense of what happened to them. And what seems to have happened is that the militia forced them both to wash their face as a Muslim would wash his face before prayer. And this is something that any Muslim would know. There's right. a ritual a procedure called we'll do it before you uh, before you pray that one of them could do it and one of them couldn't do it or couldn't do it exactly right and that seems to have uh, nailed these guys who are eventually executed in the dunes outside Jaffa and their bodies aren't found for decades so it was a very treacherous game you know one slip like that or a verb that you misconjugate or some detail of dress that doesn't quite gel you know you're passing as a worker but your shirt is too clean right. or you say you're from one village but your dialect uh, indicates another village. Any of this could get you killed, as indeed it did. Of about a dozen active agents in the Arab section at the beginning of the war, about half of them die. This is a time where, again, it's important to understand that this isn't the Mossad. This isn't Shin Bet. This isn't an organization that's had decades of practice, you know, that pulls off all these amazing feats. A lot of these Arab section guys didn't even have a radio at first when they were sent overseas. They didn't, there's no real hierarchy. Um, they had to borrow a Minox camera from a civilian friend. So this is not yeah, like... They were told, by the way, on mm. one mission where they borrowed the Minax that if they didn't come back, that would be okay, but the camera better come yes. back. They, didn't, they weren't getting paid. They didn't have money for lunch. There was one operation where they were following somebody and they had to stop because they didn't have money for a hostel to actually have an overnight surveillance team. And they had no training. And you've already kind of talked about the idea that some of them were executed, but that was a mistake you may have been able to see coming. That was a mistake that kind of wasn't careless it was just training but there were careless mistakes that could have gotten them killed they're visiting relatives you know they're don't tell anybody i mean there's there's <laughs> one of your one of the main characters probably of the book the man that was the um he went and visited uh his stepmother if i remember the story right, right. uh and then said don't tell anybody and then the whole village knew 
that he was there. And great, great. It became this kind of call to arms of like the hero going off to fight for Israel, but his horrendous trade craft that could have gotten a lot of them killed. Um, it's just reading and I'm kind of chuckling because again, the mystique of the Mossad set that on fire. That doesn't come until much, much later. That's right. And I, I imagine that much of the mystique of the Mossad is also um, exaggerated. Oh, sure. Um, when you're a small country, a very small country in a hostile region, you have to talk a big game. And that kind of intelligence bluff and military bluff is very important. And I'm, you know, as an Israeli, I, I don't want to dispel it too much. But as a journalist, I suspect that even today it's not entirely earned. But there's no question that um, back in those days it was... It was ad hoc, and the fact that any of them survived is quite miraculous, given how how little they were trained and the kind of equipment that they had. As you as you mentioned, when they were sent into Lebanon to set up what became Israel's first intelligence station, they went off without a radio, and they had no way to communicate with uh, with headquarters. You know, and if you're imagining headquarters as kind of a gleaming skyscraper right. with uh, satellite dishes on the roof, it was the corner of a shed on a kibbutz and have a picture of it in the book. It's just this wooden table with a Morse transmitter on it. That was headquarters. And um, for a while, they didn't even know if the state of Israel had survived. Because when they're dispatched right. into the Arab world, it's a few weeks before the establishment of the state. The British are still in control when they leave. And then the British leave. There's an Arab invasion. And they have no idea if the Jews have have managed to hold out or not. And all they see are headlines in Arabic news. Wait, they're getting disinformation or, or garbage propaganda. Propaganda. From, yeah, they don't the know Arab if it's side. true because according yeah. to the Arabic newspapers, the Arab armies are triumphant and they have to grapple with the very real possibility that they've been dispatched to serve a state that doesn't exist. Right. They don't even have a state to disown them if they get captured, right? That's they're right. Certainly not one to trade for them if there's going to If spy they get trade. into trouble, they're gone. Yeah. They're gone. So, and I read this in the book. If you're aspiring for the United States, you know, I imagine that that's quite stressful. But wherever you are, you know that Langley exists and the CIA exists and America exists and there's someone out there. But these guys didn't have that. They, they were spies of no country. When no. they go to Lebanon, there is no state of Israel. And that was the void that they were facing. And yet they set out without a radio, without a state, without salaries. They set out at incredible risk to themselves. And that makes them, in my eyes, real heroes, complicated heroes, but, but genuine heroes. Well, again, in the book, you, you kind of really put a point on this. You said, you know, they set out with all that, except for an idea, right? They're kind of this concept that's put into their heads, not only by the Zionist movement about the idea of Israel, um, but also they, they have a, rel a good teacher. They didn't get a lot of time to learn from their good teacher, but they've got a guy who kind of knows what he's doing and kind of who, I, I, I guess you could kind of equate him to a, like a drill sergeant who kind of gives you this patriotism, this idea of like fighting the good fight. Can you talk a little bit, I don't want to butcher Saman, is that how you pronounce it? I, okay. That's right. All right so. He was a, a Jew from Baghdad whose name, he had, a, he had a Hebrew name too, but he used an Arabic name, Sam'an. His name was Shimon Somech, but everyone called him Sam'an because his Arabic name seemed to suit him better. He was their expert on Arab culture, on Islam. He had, he had studied Islam with an Islamic scholar. He had a little library of Islamic uh, literature in his tent, and he was a real kind of aficionado of, of Arab culture and of Islamic culture, not just as a military man, he genuinely admired it and was interested in it. And he's the one who teaches them Islam. So we have records of them in this tent. It's all very rough. It's just tense. They study Quran and they study prayer and they have to know certain basic things about Islam. They're not going to be passing as, you know, college professors. They're passing as 
workers. Mm. So they don't have to be intellectuals, but they have to know what a Muslim on the street would know, and and that's tricky. So they managed to get it to some uh, to some extent, but the war really breaks out before they're ready. Right. And Saman had we we have some records from Saman. He never published a word, but he we have some kind of internal documents where he says, you know, I needed more time to train these guys, but. Um, but but he didn't have time, and they were sent out kind of unprepared. And he knew that some of them had died because he'd sent them out unprepared. And I think that stayed with him. Saman later becomes one of Israel's most important kind of spy spy masters. But he had plenty of time to train someone who becomes arguably the most famous Israeli spy of That's all time. Right, although he's the most famous Israeli spy because he's caught. So we right. don't know if there are, if there were yes. better spies. But he um, he trains Eli Cohen who is, like Isaac Shoshan, he's a Syrian Jew who comes to Israel and then is reinserted into Syria under an assumed identity. His name is Kamal Amin Thabit, and he's a businessman. And he manages to penetrate the highest levels of the Syrian regime and get some very valuable intelligence, more valuable, I think, than anything that the Arab section managed to get uh, back in 1948. This is in the early 60s, and it's it's a successful operation until 1965 when Eli Cohen is caught and hung in Damascus. Yeah, if you don't know that story, there's a a lot of good books about it. It's extraordinary. I mean, you're laughing at how he's able to get people at the top leadership of the Syrian army and the Syrian politics to like embrace him. I mean, this is a guy who like embedded himself at the highest levels of, of Syrian government at a time in which that was incredibly important for Israel, because this is when there's some major attacks coming. He's able to kind of let them know a lot about it. And, um, and also for anyone who's thinking about a career in espionage, uh, about the problems with getting complacent and lazy, which is probably what gets him killed in the end of sending one too many radio messages from the same place. So there's a lot of, but he certainly lasted a long time. So you can see maybe if Saman had more time with these guys, um, they could have been more successful, but they, they had some success. I want to talk about some of their successes in a second, but you kind of downplayed a little bit about saying he, Cohen got a lot more information. The Arab section did, but the Arab sections are really the only ones at this point, bringing back any intelligence for Israel um, especially about how Arab leaders, about how uh, Arab people were thinking at this time. They're really the only source of human intelligence information for the Israelis. You talk about how eventually they get a little bit of overhead reconnaissance, there's a little bit of signals intelligence, but as far as on the ground, these are it. They're it. That's right, and this is at the moment of the inception of the state, it's an incredibly chaotic and dangerous moment. The, 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 the state is in disarray because of the, of the war. I mean, 1% of the Jewish population in Palestine dies in this war, and it was touch and go for a while. It didn't, for a while, it didn't look like the state was going to succeed. And amid all of this, no one really had any time to do any long-term planning or think about an intelligence service. They were just trying to survive. And in this storm of events, the Arab section, which is about a dozen of these very young, kind of untrained guys, they go out to get information, and they do, and they do. They, they'll cross into an Arab village, for example, disguised as a peddler or as a barber, an itinerant barber, and they'll talk to people, and they'll kind of walk around and sit in a cafe and kind of get the mood, maybe buy a newspaper and bring it back. Eventually, they graduate to attending political meetings, and we have their reports on political meetings, some which are very sophisticated, even though these guys were not educated. None of them had been to college, and only one of my four main characters finished high school. Didn't one of them get elected as like the deputy 
something one of these political organizations one of the agents one of my four main characters Gamliel Cohen manages to uh, get himself elected as part of a kind of pseudo-fascist nationalist (laughs) party in Lebanon called the SSNP and we have photographs of him at rallies and so they they were quite successful at that they're essentially neo-Nazi right I mean they even have some of the symbolism symbol they have a flag that's very reminiscent of the the swastika and and Gamliel under his assumed um, Arab identity which is Yusuf El Hamed he becomes a member of that that party um, but they eventually graduate to sabotage and they carried a few sabotage mm. operations and they carry out one uh, assassination of a or attempted assassination of a very important Arab military and religious leader in in Haifa I want to talk about that in a second because the, the last thing I want to hit on this is there, there's for anyone who is an intelligence professional or wanting to be or knows about it there's a really interesting argument that goes on in this book between your two of your main characters um, that still exists today and that's the idea of what intelligence agencies should be doing and one is pushing for intelligence collection right an intelligence agency should be bringing back information like the prime mission of this Arab section should be supplying Israeli policymakers and decision makers in the military with information about what's going on in the other place the other guys know we need to blow shit up Right. It's about covert actions, about taking kinetic steps to push back in. And that that debate goes on till like right now, basically, not just in the world, but also till like the day one of them died. They were still arguing about this and they, they never really kind of got over the idea of what direction this should be. And of course, this goes back to the idea of no hierarchy and it was really problematic who was in charge and what direction should it be in. But this was a debate that may have slowed down their ability to do the kind of to go to their full abilities and their kind of full potential uh, because they couldn't really decide what they wanted to be. I'm glad you picked up on that. It's very, it's a very interesting thread in the story of the time that these guys spent in Beirut. So they're sent off in this kind of anarchic uh, way, and the Jewish military underground was never really into hierarchy. And they, it's hard to run an intelligence service like that, as they found. And one of the reasons that the Arab section is ultimately dismantled and kind of absorbed into um, the real intelligence services is, is because you can't run an intelligence services that uh, service like you know like cowboys, but two of the characters, two of my four characters, one of them is Gamliel, who we mentioned before, another is Yakuba. They clashed a lot about what the role of a spy is. Gamliel was kind of a more settled personality. He was the most educated before, the most literate, and he thought that his job was to collect intelligence and to provide headquarters with an accurate sense of what was going on in the Arab world so that the new Israeli state could understand the threats that it was that it was facing. Yakuba saw himself as a soldier in a war. The 1948 war is very much on when they're dispatched, and he understood his job as uh, bringing the war to the enemy, and he wanted to blow things up. His dream was to blow up the refinery in Tripoli, Lebanon, which was a very important installation, and he had these fantasies about just blowing it up. It would be, you know, the Middle East's biggest firecracker, and it would cripple the Arab war effort, and he he's planning for it they go to the installation and they kind of snoop around and headquarters never lets him do it and he's furious about it because he thinks they're they're chicken and he's furious about it not just in 1948 he's still angry about it in the 90s when he and Gamliel are very old guys and Gamliel writes a book about his experiences in the Arab section and Yakuba records this very long oral testimony in both of those texts they're still waging this war they're still sniping on each other Yakuba thinks Gamliel's a coward for not going ahead with the refinery plan and Gamliel thinks that Yakuba was very irresponsible for for this stuff until literally until the day they died they were still arguing about about it and, and as you said it's an argument that's uh, very much a part of 
intelligence work. To well, I mean, it day. comes right out of the, the the British experience in World War II, where you've got SIS or MI six, whatever you want to call it, you know, versus SOE. The idea of you know, are we intelligence collectors or are we saboteurs? Um, and um, I mean, Gabriel, am I pronouncing that right? Didn't he sign up with the caveat that he wouldn't kill anybody? That's right. Right. So this was a guy who was a wanted to be an intelligence professional, right? Like the true sense of the word, not the James Bond, Walter PPK, the guy who goes and, and convinces people to give them information because that's the kind of key component of intelligence. That's right. He manages to extract a very unique promise from Saman, who's running the Arab section, that he will only collect intelligence. He's not going to kill anyone. So the other members of the section do kill people, and he doesn't. And he is an intelligence professional, and he, after the war, under the same identity, Yusuf al-Hamid, the same cover identity he was using, he goes on to a career as one of Israel's longest running undercover agents. And he, his, he's in Europe for many, many years, uh, and his cover is so deep that his wedding is conducted secretly in Europe. His, uh, two of his daughters are born under assumed identities. They don't know they're Jewish. Gamiel's wife is part of the cover story. And Surprise. As, <laughs> when I met her, she's still alive, and she's an incredible woman. And when I met her, she told me that she gave birth in a hospital in Europe. In the 50s, and one of the things she had to remember while giving birth, and I guess you know women have to remember many, they have a lot to think about while giving birth, but one of the things she had to think about was not screaming in Hebrew. Right. And so this, this, this family, Gamliel's family, was really part of, um, part of his cover. He has a daughter, who I also know, whose name is Mira, that's a Hebrew name, but she was born with the name Samira, which is an Arab name, mm. and they gave her an Arabic name that could be easily changed to a Hebrew name once the cover right. was over and they came back to Israel. So Gamliel, the consummate professional, does go on to a very long and very successful intelligence career, and when he died in 2001 or 2002, one of Israel's most prominent military historians said that Gamliel had been one of Israel's greatest spies. We'd never heard of him because he was never caught. Right. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, you hear about the failures but you, you, if you're doing it right, you don't hear about the successes. Um, they, they were still able to carry out pretty bold covert action regardless. Um, some more successful than others, but there are some extraordinary missions. I mean, you talk about the attempted assassination, uh, truck bombing that you kind of talk about. But the, the Hitler's yacht was one of the most interesting stories in all this because I love it. If you talk about covert action, there's good covert action, there's great covert action, and there's perfect covert action. And the perfect covert action is when they have no idea who's behind it and in fact are blaming other people. And that's what comes across in this. Now they don't sink the yacht, but they make it, they prevent it from doing what it was supposed to do. And no one thought it, there were 20 other possible suspects behind this and no one thought about the Jews, which I find extraordinary, but they were able to pull it off in such a way that it's the perfect covert action. So in the, in the fall of 1948, bizarrely, a strange ship shows up in the port at Beirut, and these agents realize that this is Hitler's yacht. Now, it's not a pleasure yacht, it's a small warship that was built for Hitler by the Nazi regime in the 30s. Uh, it's called a Viso Grill, and if you look online, you'll find some information about it. A Viso Grill was supposed to carry Hitler up the Thames to London to receive the British surrender mm -hmm. after the successful invasion of, uh, of Great Britain, which of course never comes. But the ship is sold for scrap after the war and it disappears and it resurfaces all of a sudden in, in Beirut. And the Israelis are worried that this ship is being refitted to serve as a, a warship that will be then uh, 
part of the Egyptian navy and that this is going to swing the balance of naval power against the Israelis in the eastern Mediterranean. And it's not it's not much of a ship by World War II standards, but by the standards Compared of that, to the Israeli navy, which was basically... Imaginary. Yes. The Israeli Robots. Navy was, yeah. was wishful thinking. Yeah. That's what it was. It was just a few leaky ships that they'd found lying around the port when the British left and they bolted machine guns to the deck. And they didn't really have a navy in that, just like they didn't really have an intelligence service. It was very like the, you know, they would have these names for things, but they wouldn't really exist. Uh, so they, this could have been a significant addition to the, to the arsenal on the Arab side. And, and the Israelis put into motion a mission to sink this ship. And Israel becomes famous afterwards for this kind of sabotage mission beyond the borders of the state. But this was the first one. This was a few months after the state was founded. It, the, war, the war the war of independence is still raging. And they use everything they have. They take an aerial photograph, which at the time was, right. wow. And they uh, have photographs taken from the ground by our guys in Beirut. And one of those photographs appears in the book. And they land a frogman in Beirut with magnetic mines. Right. They're bringing the pro from Dover, the swimmer who goes and and then the mines don't go off right away and they That's don't right. go off for quite some time. And then That's right. This being yeah. a real spy story, uh, it doesn't work quite the yeah. way an imaginary spy story yes. would work with. In an imaginary spy story, you know, it would be perfect and these guys would be watching through a window as the yacht blows up and they'd clink glasses discreetly behind a curtain and then vanish. But uh, this is the real world and it doesn't work that way, although they do manage to they do achieve the mission uh, at the end of the day, but the mines don't go off and nothing works according to plan. Um, but they're so proud of having pulled this off without getting anyone killed, without getting them themselves killed, right. that they declare it to be a major success. And at the time, it was very well known inside Israeli intelligence, although it's been completely forgotten. And when I encountered it in the files, when I was doing research for this book, I had never heard of it before, right. but it was Israel's first sabotage mission of its kind. When again, you give a laundry list, there's a whole paragraph of people who were blamed for this, or at least who the, right. <laughs> who the Lebanese were kind of like, it could be these guys or these guys. It could be, you know, people who thought the, the Lebanese army was too secular or this or that. And, or it could and, be criminal. Right. There are all kinds of, and to this day, if you Google Aviso Grill, you'll find a, a history of, of the ship written by a British journalist named Revel Barker, a very interesting guy who I corresponded with a bit when I was working on, on this book. And in his history of, of Aviso Grill, he mentions that there was an attack on the ship in 1948, and he attributes it to someone else. So the first time, to the best of my knowledge, right. that the actual responsibility has been uh, published is here. That's as good as it gets. So let's wrap this up with the bottom line. So not to give them too much credit or too little credit, you know, you're, you're now the expert on these guys. How important were they for the success of the Israeli state? I mean, obviously, they don't win the war, but the intelligence they provide probably was a game changer in many respects. So would you put these people as kind of someone that needs to be in the same sentence as some of the founders of the Israeli state, some of the military heroes of the 48 war? It's, it's a good question. I think there's a, a temptation for people writing about intelligence fiction or nonfiction to attribute great um, ramifications to the to the work of spies. So everyone writing a you know a history of, of a certain spy likes to claim that this spy swung the course of a war or changed the course of history or I suspect that's rarely true. Spies are one part mm -hmm. of something much bigger, but these guys are moving in the shadows and they themselves rarely understand the big picture and they're passing on fragments of information, some of which might be valuable, most of which is probably not valuable. And only years later is it possible to say whether it mattered. Right. So I'm trying to be realistic about these guys. I don't think they swung the course of the war and I don't think they changed the course of, of history, but they were very, very important. They're important for two reasons. In 1948, they're 
Israel's only effective intelligence tool. As, as you mentioned earlier, when Israel wants to know what the other side is thinking, when Israel's trying to understand exactly what they're, what they're dealing with, the eyes they have on the other side of the line are these guys from the, from the Arab section, for better or worse. And they managed to deliver some very useful intelligence on Arab military preparation, on, um, on the fate of, the, of Arab refugees mm -hmm. after 1948, which is a very important political issue that Israel's trying to deal with uh, immediately after the war. These are the eyes on the ground, so that's important. And, and secondly, these guys are one of the seeds of what becomes one of the world's most effective intelligence services, which is kind of comic if you realize right, exactly. what they were, who they were and what they were working with. But they are founding what becomes the, the Mossad and the surviving members of the Arab section end up in, in the Mossad. Sam'an, who's really running the Arab section, becomes a very important figure in, in Israeli intelligence. And these guys, as, as one of them says, and I quote him in the book, they were the school. They they came up with Israeli intelligence doctrine not by learning it from someone, but by trial and error. And there were, there were a lot of errors. Right. But when they come out the other end of this thing, those of them that come out, they have a lot of very valuable experience. And they've shown that Israel doesn't need to pay Arab informers to get information. They can use the part of the Jewish population that is native to the right. Arab world to assume Arab identities, go across the lines and come back. And that is very much a part of the success of the Israeli intelligence services. And it's fictionalized in a series like Fauda, but it's very much, uh, it's very much true. And those are the main contributions of, of the Arab section guys beyond being, I think, just kind of endearing and interesting human characters right. who give you a very interesting, and very different insight into a, an important moment in history. I think that's one of the, the real successes of this book. And, 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 I, and I think one thing that it does is not only provides a really interesting human story about these, these kind of their lives and kind of their background and where they came from, but also kind of this kind of founding story of Israeli intelligence. You know, So if you are someone who wants a understanding of how the Mossad was formed and how Israeli intelligence was formed, Again, this is a necessary book because this, this piece has been missing from that narrative. But if that's something that you're not super interested in, there's just a really good character study here of people who, like you said, don't have anything but an idea, like this idea of this nation that they think may one day come to being. And even when it does, they have no idea that it did. Uh, and so I think it kind of it mixes those two things very, very well. And the book itself is called Spies of No Country. Uh, it is out now. Uh, the author is Maddie Freeman. Thank you so much for coming to talk. I, I've, I've had the galley for a while, and because of the movie of the museum, and, and because you weren't here and now you are, it's a kind of, I read it a while ago, and I looked at it, and I'm like, God, when's he coming? Because it's just an interesting tidbit about a, a spy story that just no one knows. And I, it's rare that we find those especially one that's this old, right? It's one thing if something can be classified from 10 years ago, but something we think we know so much about, right? Israeli intelligence that everyone, you know, studies. Uh, a new thing is just really great to see. So Maddie, thank you so much for talking to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.